This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The U.S. school-age population is projected to spiral downward over the next decade and more. When the economy crashed in 2008 and the recovery turned out to be prolonged and inadequate, marriages were postponed and birth rates declined. The consequences for schools are going to be genuine. But are these consequences good or bad? Will schools now have more resources for each and every student and therefore be better placed to meet the needs of each? Or will downsizing and retrenchment demoralize an industry in decline? Michael Petrilli of the Fordham Institute has given this matter some careful thought, and he has written a provocative piece for Education Next. Michael is the president of the Fordham Institute. Michael, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's great to be here with you, Paul. Well, Michael, let's begin with the facts. Uh, how much have birth rates declined already in the decades yeah. since the big crash? Well, yeah, you know, what, as you said in the introduction, Paul, we did see this big decline uh, when the Great Recession hit, and demographers were not necessarily so surprised by that. Uh, we have seen that in the past, although not this bad since the Great Depression. It's another indicator that the Great Recession really was a very difficult uh, financial situation that has had this big impact across our society. So, uh, you know, we, we saw births uh, drop quite significantly. What was surprising was that they did not come back up after the Great Recession receded. And in fact, we are still below the high. Right now, 2007, when, by the way, my 11-year-old was born, uh, is now stands as the, the year when more babies were born in the United States than in any other year, even at the height of the baby boom. But then uh, there were sharp declines after that, and we still remain low. And so how much actual numbers yeah, down you know, is I, it? Yeah, you know, I don't have that right in front of me. You might have that in front of you. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, it was on the order of, of almost 10% uh, in terms of the, the number of babies born. Now, the demographer crowd will say that that number isn't as important because it can be influenced by lots of things, like the different cohorts that are coming through. If you've got a small cohort like the Gen Xers, which I'm a part of, uh, you would expect to see birth rates go down uh, it, just because there's fewer of us to have babies. What's particularly concerning is that we have a huge cohort right now, the millennials, and millennial women are at their prime uh, birth age uh, or, or childbearing ages. And so the fact that we have this, uh, this sort of recession in childbirth at the same time that we have this big cohort that, that you know you would expect would be having lots of babies right now indicates that it could be even worse, that, that uh, as this cohort ages out uh, and they've got a smaller cohort behind them, that the rate could drop even more. And so when you look at the, the, what they call the total fertility rate, I think we're talking about something like down 17%. Uh, so these are real numbers. And uh, folks that have looked into this have generally concluded that it's because younger women are not having as many babies as in the past. And this is, a lot of this is good news. Uh, the teen birth rate continues to decline. It's gone down dramatically. Something I, like 50%. I just saw that abortions are down too. Abortions are down, you know, and, and women in their early 20s, fewer of them are having babies, which again, considering the importance of education uh, and getting a foothold in the economy, this is probably on the whole a good thing. But it does mean uh, that we have fewer babies being born in this country, and that's going to have an impact on our education system. So how much enrollment decline have we already seen in our educational system? You know, it's, it's just starting to work its way through our elementary schools. And so um, 
I, I think it's been pretty modest so far. Uh, you look at, say, uh, you know, the kids who were born in uh, more like now 2009, 2010, 2011, you know, these kids are just now into, you know, first, second, third grade. Uh, and you do see some, some declines and some drops in those ages. Uh, and we expect that to carry on throughout the entire system. Now, of course, it's uneven. And there are still places in America where population is growing, places like Texas, uh, but, and there's plenty of places where they've been in decline forever, you know, a lot of rural America where this is nothing new. Uh, but in the aggregate, I think it's fair to say that we're going to have fewer kids to educate uh, in coming years than we have had in the recent past. Well, you know, uh, Michael, this is all very worrisome, except I remember reading a book back in the 1960s by Paul and Ann Ehrlich, yep. who said we were about to have a population bomb. <laughs> the, the, right. the world was going to blow up, yep. not from an atom bomb, but from a population mm -hmm. bomb. Yep. And he was wrong. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> and then and then there was this other thing that came along shortly after about the Chinese were going to collapse because they had limited family to mm -hmm. just one child, and that was going to create a disaster for mm -hmm. the Chinese system, which was going to have an economic collapse. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that one still, I think, could happen or it could be an issue. But, yeah, your, your point is, is fair, Paul. These things shift, and the decline in the birth rate uh, was a surprise, at least that it hasn't rebounded. And maybe something will happen in the next few years where suddenly we're finally going to see all these millennials start having babies. And this won't be as much of a problem as we think. It just seems unlikely. You do the math, and the problem is, you know, the clock is ticking. And women are going to hit a biological limit on when they can have babies. And so uh, – and, and it's interesting, Paul. You know, the surveys that people have done, they will survey uh, young people. And young people still say they want to have children. They still want to have two or three children each, uh, but they are not uh, getting started soon enough uh, to make that happen for everybody. Well, how about the migration rate into the United States? Yeah, is absolutely. that going to go down or well, is that going to go up? Another big question, and that's been another big change is, of course, that migration rate has come down. And for this issue, it's a double whammy because it was, it, it was the migrant families, the immigrant families, who were having higher birth rates uh, than than the uh, native-born population. And so, you know, you take a lot of those people out of the picture, they are not there, and, you know, their higher birth rates are not there. And, and by the way, Latina women in particular have changed quite dramatically in recent years in terms of their childbearing uh, trends that they now look a lot more like, uh, like white and African-American women having many fewer babies. So, I mean, all of this together, if you're a superintendent uh, in a typical place in America, uh, you've got to expect that you are going to have fewer students to educate coming into your schools over the next decade or so. It Maybe it'll shift, but at this point, a lot of that is baked in. And so the question is, how do you prepare for that? Uh, and what is that mean, going to mean for our schools? Okay, so let's say um, you're right, that this uh, skeptical line of questioning, I could ask you why you know the migration mm -hmm. rate in the future right. when I don't know the outcome of the 2020 election. Yeah. And that might have a big effect sure. on the migration Absolutely. rate. Uh, but still, let's assume you're right. Um, where do you think the impact is going to be the greatest uh, in terms of regional impact, in terms of mm -hmm. ethnic composition of the uh, school-age population? Where, where do you see the, yeah. some of the details of this? No, I, I, it's a good question, and I'm not a demographer. Uh, I, so I don't have 
I don't know for sure. You know, you can look and see that there are still some states that are growing and some states that have been declined for a long time. You know, you look at the New England, for example, has had in most places population decline, a lot of rural America. Uh, you see, you know, still the, the Sun Belt has generally held up and Texas certainly continues to grow like gangbusters. But, uh, you know, I think uh, depending on the metro area, you see uh, some cities continue to attract a lot of young people with good paying jobs. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, this is going to be uneven. But, you know, it, it, the, the assumption that a lot of people have is that this is going to be a disaster all, you know, no matter what happens, it's going to be a disaster. And it's going to be a disaster because we're not going to have as many workers in the economy. We've got all these baby boomers that are retiring and we need to figure out how to pay for their retirement and their health care costs. And that we just aren't going to have enough workers to, to get the job done. And that economic growth is driven in part by the number of people you've got in the labor market. Yeah, but so, the other side of that coin is that people have been saying that th there's not going to be any work for yep, people to yep, do because yep. technology is advancing so fast and yep. cars are being automated and factories are being automated right. and our brains are being automated. And so e eventually, you know, there's going to be nothing for yep. people to do except sit in front of the sofa. So right. isn't isn't actually the fact that we'll have fewer yeah. people entering the workforce a good thing it, it given could, these yeah. projections on technology? No, it, it absolutely could be. And let's talk about within the schools, okay? So uh, I don't think anybody enjoys closing schools, uh, which is something that may have to happen in some places because of this. Um, but one positive piece of this is that you will need fewer teachers. And if we need fewer teachers, it means we can be choosier. Uh, and we've had a big conversation in this country. You've written some great articles about this, Paul, that uh, we have not been very choosy when it comes to hiring teachers, at least when we get into these times in the economy where the labor market's hot and it's hard to find enough people for our schools. What do we do? In too many places, we lower our standards and we hire people that maybe weren't very well educated themselves. And so if we have a situation where we simply need fewer teachers every year because the system is shrinking, we can raise our standards, and that could be a very good thing. Or we could hire other people besides teachers. One of the things that I've learned lately is yeah. that the growth in the uh, workforce in our educational system is taking place largely outside the classroom. Yeah. More people are being hired by our schools mm -hmm. who are not teachers. And are, That's right. The growth in education is not in the teaching profession. Yeah. It's in the non-teaching profession. That's right. Now, the other big question is is spending. You mentioned this before. What is going to happen with spending? I decided to do just a little, little basic exercise to look at the states and say, okay, what has the population trend been for their students over time, and what has their spending uh, trends been? And what you find in general is that places that have lost population are now spending more money per pupil than they were before and then other states. And states that have been growing like gangbusters have been struggling to keep up, uh, to spend enough to keep the per pupil spending even at, a, at the same level, much less the increases. And so, you know, it does indicate that, you, you know, states can at least make these decisions to spend the same amount of money they've been spending, but spread it out over fewer kids. Uh, you know, that if you're the governor, and you look at a line item in your budget for education, you know, you can keep that that spending uh, at the same level and spread it out. If you're talking about a local school district and you're raising a certain amount of revenue from property taxes and other local taxes, you know, you can spread that out over fewer kids. And so it is possible that we could see in some of these places per pupil spending actually go up, at least if that is sustainable. Now, <laughs> the flip side is we're competing with those darn baby boomers 
you know, who have a lot of expenses that also hit well, their state there's, budgets. Well, there's Medicaid, is, which is really uh, a driver yeah. of increasing state expenditures. Right. Uh, and uh, there's also uh, the demand for higher education and free college. Yep. And uh, there's, there's plenty of other ways to spend state dollars than, than on K-12 schools. And I'm sure there's going to be people sitting in uh, offices in state mm -hmm. government who are going to figure out that there are fewer kids now than there were in the past, and maybe right. the schools get by with a little bit less. Right, and that, that's going to be the decision. Look, you know, so it's about we're going to have policy choices. Do we keep spending the money or not? Do we try to raise standards for teachers or not? Another one is if we have to close schools, how do we make those decisions? You know, this is an opportunity to close the lowest performing schools or the most segregated schools. I mean, those are all policy choices we can make rather than just do it, you know, kind of on some kind of uh, automatic way. So, so there are – this but, but there is a silver essay, lining. This is a really tough thing for superintendents to do. Just about it the is. hardest thing there is out there is to close a school. And there's lots of schools out there that yeah. are half empty already yeah, today right. for reasons – not to do with the current decline in mm -hmm. enrollment, but the migration out of our central cities to the suburbs and to the Sun Belt. Yeah, that's right. Or from our rural communities to the metro areas, right, as, as young people go looking for good jobs. So how do you sum it up? Do you say the consequences are good or bad? Yeah. What, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, I think this is really going to be a story about how different states and different school districts uh, choose to deal with this. I think more than anything, the point has got to be for superintendents and charter school leaders especially is to say that this is happening. This is coming. You need to have a plan for it uh, so that you can uh, manage it as well as possible and, and perhaps, you know, turn some lemons into lemonade. Well, one thing I have noticed is that the growth of charter schools in the United States in the last decade mm -hmm. has been primarily in the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, the student enrollment is primarily Hispanic. That's mm -hmm. been the growth. So whereas yeah. at one time Hispanics had a relatively small share of the charter school population, they yeah. now have a very substantial and growing share. Mm -hmm. So that suggests to me that when you have growth taking mm -hmm. place, that's when you can have charter schools. You can bring yep. new schools online, and they're a little cheaper to set up a charter school than to build a great new uh, district-operated mm -hmm. school with all the playgrounds and all the uh, bells and whistles that people now expect whenever the government takes and builds its own school. So a lot of these states that are seeing growth are saying, you know, these charter schools solve a fiscal problem That's for right. us. And we see that in the other parts of the country where the, you're getting declining enrollment, you're getting the big fight between mm -hmm. the district schools and the charter schools. Mm -hmm. So are you predicting an intensification yeah. of the fight over charter schools? Un unfortunately, I think that's right. I, you can also look at Denver as an interesting test case here. Uh, you know, the city had a pretty pro-charter, pre-charter-friendly policy for many years. As the district was growing, more and more families moving into Denver, and they had a challenge. How do you build enough schools to serve them all? So, like you said, happy to have charters uh, serve as a release valve. I think you saw that in Arizona back in the boom years as well. Well, Denver is now turned around. Suddenly, uh, it's gotten so expensive, people can't move in as much anymore. They're seeing uh, population is now steady and even maybe declining. And suddenly, the politics are shifting, uh, where there's less support for charter schools than in the past. So, yeah, look, it is when it feels like a zero-sum game, things get tough politically. 
And I think that's, you know, we, we've seen that certainly in, in the Northeast and much in the Midwest. I think we're likely to see it now in the West and Southwest and the, the Sun Belt as well. Now, on the other hand, there's the pension issue out there. One of the growing issues is mm -hmm. the rising cost of pensions, the rising cost of medical services, and a lot of school districts gave away the store when they wrote these yeah. very generous collective bargaining agreements, uh, promising mm -hmm. teachers uh, substantial medical benefits and not worrying about how to fund it. Now, you know, the, yeah. the bill is coming due. So right. uh, maybe this extra money can help solve the pension medical costs problem. Well, which extra money? Where's the extra money? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just well, find extra money? Yeah, well, it, it's all, yeah, like, <laughs> Under the you know, it, you're right. Because uh, if they've got to keep control of mm -hmm. the share of the budget that's going to K-12 education if they're going to be able to do all of this yeah. and to pay the salary increases for teachers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, the, you know, you asked at the beginning the right question, which is, is, is this just a little blip or is this some kind of long-term trend where we're going to see the birth rate, you know, go south forever or, you know, low forever? Uh, if that happens, you know, and people will say, look, it's, it's just uh, that having children has become more of a luxury. It's expensive. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of things in our culture that are pushing against it. You say, will we find a way to say, look, the, the children, you know, it's such a cliche. The children are our future, uh, but they really are, and we are going to need to find a way to invest in them in order to do well. And if there's fewer of them, maybe we'll see them as, as you know, uh, more, uh, you know, the, we'll be more willing to invest more money in their futures than we have been in the past. So what are you recommending? I mean, you, you've been saying you got to be thoughtful. you got to yeah. be, you got to understand this issue, but... Can't you say something more specific and concrete? Sure. What is the actions yeah. that a person in a policy position yeah. should be taking Look, today? Look, I, 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 think, I think if you're a superintendent, I think that you should be preparing for this by thinking about which schools can you close that are the lowest performing schools so that at, you know by doing – this gives you an excuse. It is hard to close a school politically, but if you've got schools that are half empty, you can make a fiscal case at this moment. So take the opportunity, close your worst schools. That would be a win for kids uh, in the long run. Likewise with teachers, this is your opportunity to raise the bar. Policymakers should be paying attention to this. The folks who are lowering those teacher certification exam cut scores and the like is to rethink that and to say, look, uh, the issue is not teacher shortages. Uh, the issue is going to be that we're going to have a glut of teachers, at least in some areas, and this is a chance for us to raise the bar. You know, likewise, uh, we talk forever about improving ed schools, and very few states have been willing to do it, but this is a chance to go shut down some of the worst ed schools or limit their output uh, if they're not getting the job done. You've got that, you know, opportunity right now, uh, and that can make a big difference, that if we could boost, get, get lots more smart people into teaching uh, by raising the bar in that way, you know, that, that could really be a positive outcome. Yeah, nobody should ever let a fiscal crisis go to waste. I've heard that before, yes. And uh, I think that's what the advice is that you're, you're yeah. giving, and that's, uh, that's really compelling. So uh, thank you for joining me on yeah. the Education Exchange, uh, Mike. Great. Thanks, Paul. Well, I've been speaking with Michael Petrilli, president of the Fordham Institute. Uh, this is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.